Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing James Butterfill, investment strategist at CoinShares. James, great to have you on for guidance. Great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, James, so this is my first crypto interview that I've done on Forward Guidance. So uh, please be be kind with me uh, as I work my way into the space. I want to um, start off by just telling people how you got into crypto. You were you know, in the traditional finance world. You worked at Coots. You were, uh, ran equity strategy at HSBC. How did you sort of get the crypto bug and say, hmm, I actually want to work in this in this field? I've always been a bit of a techie. Um, I've always loved building computers over the last 20 years. And I, in about 2016, I started having a lot of clients saying, hey, you guys run a really big gold fund and you were the pioneers in that. Why aren't you um, building a Bitcoin fund? And that I was a bit late in that respect. It was the first time I'd really heard about it. And I thought, well, as head of research at ETF Securities back then, I thought, well, the best way probably is for me to build my own mining rig and that will help me understand it better. So I built a few Ethereum mining rigs and and I have to admit, I think my understanding then of how it all worked was quite low, um, but I like the concept of it. Um, and I made quite a lot of Ethereum that way and have not sold any of it yet so my wife thought i was crazy but she doesn't know anymore so and that's how i got into it and and then we started i started speaking to coin shares quite a lot because there was a bit of there was a few synergies between coin shares and etf securities at the time and then eventually i started working for, for coin shares and what was it that drew you to digital assets obviously there's the technology side but as an investor you know, Bitcoin has some characteristics that in the traditional finance uh, are not really found in one asset. It's kind of like an equity, kind of like a currency, kind of like a commodity, and it can got, kind of be fish and fowl to, to a lot of different investors. What was it about Bitcoin that drew you in? And also, was it Bitcoin? Was Bitcoin sort of your first love in the crypto space as it was for many? Or did you did you come in through, via Ethereum or another uh, crypto digital asset? No, I think Bitcoin was probably my, my first love in the space, like many. But no, equally, perhaps, with Ethereum as well. I think what drew a Bitcoin specifically was its uniqueness as an asset. Um, and and I really felt very early on that we were witnessing the birth of a new asset class, um, albeit early on, back in 2016, a very new one um, and a very volatile one, even in today's standards. Um, but I really thought it could catch on, you know, this idea that the internet has transformed many industries from particularly banking and commerce. And it only it's, I think in many ways, it's only right to expect that it will transform money too. Um, and from a Ethereum perspective, I just really like this concept, this world computer concept, a bit like Amazon Web Services, but with the currency rolled into it. But in this kind of decentralized manner, I think to me, that was really compelling. James, uh, where does Bitcoin fit in within the asset universe? Is it a currency? Does it behave more like a commodity, like an equity? Tell us about the different characteristics that it has. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, the initial uh, reaction is to, to say it's a currency. And then when you start looking and you think, OK, well, it's mined, then maybe it's a commodity. Um, actually, technically, a currency is not an asset class. It's just a thing in between asset classes. Um, and I think, you know, actually what's money, what's, what's a currency, um, are quite, are quite vague, you know, gold has been both or is both it's used as a medium of exchange, but not, it's not a particularly good one. I think, 
Um, when you start to look at more deeply into Bitcoin, you realize that well, it's not an equity. It's not the ownership of a business. Um, you know, I think the best definition of something like a commodity is ownership of goods with an end use. And I'd say that Bitcoin doesn't quite fit that, although it does have some end uses. Um, particularly if you look at compared to something like oil, oil is consumed every year. And so the total amount of oil in supply versus the total amount produced every year, is, the total amount produced is quite big relative to the total supply because it's consumed. Whereas something like uh, Bitcoin, that's the total amount that's produced every year is becoming smaller and smaller, both obviously programmatically, but also just for the pure, pure fact that all of the Bitcoin that's created is still in existence today. And I think when you look at it like that, you realize actually it's not a commodity. And if you think about asset classes and think very philosophically about asset classes, which is easy to do, I mean, in a, in a very simple term, they just represent an asset class is a group of assets with similar characteristics. And for equities, that's ownership of goods, uh, so ownership of a company, essentially. And for commodities, that's ownership of goods with an end use. Um, for something like um, Bitcoin, I think it's, uh, what's the best way to put it? Perhaps, a, you know, a, a ownership in a, a, a distributed ledger system. And its investment objective is perhaps a non-sovereign store of value with a diversification merit and a kind of growth component to it, which sets it apart from gold in that respect. And uh, in the world of macro investing, James, there are different uh, sort of grids, dif different environments where assets perform well. So, for example, bonds, you know, government bonds, very safe assets like government bonds perform well when growth is slowing down and when you have deflation or when inflation is, is slowing down. You know, likewise, if growth and inflation are very high and they're growing, you might want to own some emerging market stocks. Uh, where does Bitcoin sort of fit into this framework? Because if Bitcoin is like gold, you would expect to do best during sort of stagflationary times when growth is slowing down, but inflation is very high. Uh, environment like the 1970s, where gold outperformed uh, you know, almost almost everything. Uh, and yet, in your work, uh, you've noted that it, you can't. It's not that simple. That it's Bitcoin is a complicated uh, animal, and it's not just that it does well in one environment. Sort of, can you walk us through that? You, you have a chart that is very interesting. Yeah, that's an investment cycle, which you know, as you come out of a recession, the economy starts doing quite well. It's then companies and equities tend to tend to do quite well, and then quite often in the economic cycle, perhaps where we are right now a little bit of overheating in the economy, commodities tend to do quite well. And uh, then at some point, uh, the Fed or whoever it is, the central bank decides to start hiking rates to, to temper inflation. I'd say that's probably where we are right now. And then that inevitably leads to an economic downturn, which is then where more defensive equities tend to do quite well or government bonds tend to do quite well. And then you can lead into the end of that is the end result is probably a recession. And that point, that's when things safe havens like gold tend to do quite well. So gold, funny enough, does can do quite well in kind of quite, uh, you know, it's a weak economic period, but also on the flip side when there's inflation. And I think, you know, Bitcoin's a, a little bit like that, but perversely, it also has some growth elements to it too. You know, it's part, it's born out of the internet. The internet is growing very rapidly. And as a consequence, you'll probably see um, uh, Bitcoin grow too as people discover more uses for it. So, I mean, 
how where does Bitcoin sits? It probably sits right bang in the middle of the economic cycle, which is actually a really unique unique place for it. Um, the challenge we have is most I think most people have inferred from uh, say commodities, for instance, and how they perform in an overheating economic environment is probably because they've looked at history and said, okay, this is that we know from history, this is how it performs. Unfortunately for something like Bitcoin, we just haven't got that history really to determine that. But I think we can, that doesn't mean we, could, we should dismiss it. We can look conceptually at Bitcoin and what it represents. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this. And ultimately, Bitcoin is an asset of finite resource. And it's also priced in dollars, usually. Um, and therefore, in an inflationary environment where dollars are sort of, their purchasing power is declining, something that's priced in dollars that is of fixed supply should do quite well. Now, in that instance, you know, commodities to some extent of limited supply, gold, yes. And I think Bitcoin conceptually is that too. In fact, it's if you look at the hardness of an asset, Bitcoin is potentially the hardest asset in the world. Um, so we know conceptually it should perform. And there's early data to kind of back up that. If we look at what's called two-year two year, uh, forward inflation swaps, that's just people's kind of interpret the market's future expectations for inflation. We can see that Bitcoin has an increasing correlation there. And as well, I've done some scatter plots in some of my reports looking at CPI, so inflation versus Bitcoin. And what we found, although it's, I don't think the it's statistically conclusive yet by any means because there's not enough data points, but I think I'm encouraged by the fact that we see an increasing kind of R squared, increasing relationship between Bitcoin and inflation. To what degree, James, would you say that institutional investors have been behind the enormous price appreciation we've seen in crypto assets? That's kind of the narrative you hear. Do you think that uh, that is true or do you think that uh, it's actually uh, slightly overrated and that institutions are, you know, it's only just beginning? Yeah, so I can't tell you how many times I've been into client meetings in a, with a large institution and they said, yeah, I own Bitcoin in my PA, but I've not bought it for my fund yet. And there'd be several reasons for that. A year ago, it would have been, I think, I'm not sure it has enough fundamental value for me to, I might lose credibility in buying it. I think that's going away now, but there are still a lot of corporate restrictions um, that prevent people from buying. And there's a lot of regulatory concerns too that prevent people from buying in the institutional space. Um, I do think institutions are still very way behind on that, but I kind of, uh, kind of understand that. This is a brand new asset class and um, you know, there's a lot of reputational risk even now, I think, through owning Bitcoin. It feels like that, that story is changing though, that there's a reputational risk in not buying Bitcoin. But it depends who you speak to on that one. There's still a lot of clients that think we're lunatics investing in Bitcoin. But, um, um, you know, I, I think, you know, again, I, I, you know, I talked very early on about Bitcoin being a learning journey. And that really is that. It's not something you can just understand overnight. And, I, you know, from initial client engagement for us to investment, it, I reckon is on average about a year. It takes them that long to get accustomed to it and understand it well enough to decide to, to, to make that investment. And I think that's why we've seen a lot of kind of reluctance in the space or, or, or institutions be quite slow to, to react to investing in, in cryptos. 
you recently did a fund manager survey um, where you found that digital assets as a weighting of their fund were about 1.8% of the total fund. That, that, that had increased from 1% uh, from the month of August. Uh, so, you, But you still found that institutional participation was very low. Would you, would you, can you share some of the other found, uh, findings that you found in this report, um, or, or as well as well a more, more recent report, um, whether it's their, their preference for Bitcoin over the other alt, altcoins, their, their um, you know, relative bullishness on Ethereum, or you know, anything else that, that stuck out to you? Yeah, I think the most recent, for me, um, the most recent survey um, has highlighted that Ethereum, the appetite for it is cooled a bit. It's still the most favored one out there, but you know we saw nearly 42% of respondents loved Ethereum. Uh, well, it was the most favored asset in our August survey, and in our October survey, it was down to 30%, so still the highest. Um, Polkadot have seen a big spike up in, in, in positive sentiment, so... You know, I think that's that's quite encouraging. I had expected actually Solana to for us to see a pickup there, but it, while we've seen it in the fund flows, I've not necessarily seen it in the survey. Um, when we look at why investors are buying, um, the majority still say it's a speculative investment. I think for someone that's done the CFA, that's like a swear word. I, I don't see what's wrong with speculation. There was my father used to say to me, "A speculate to accumulate," and I think that's fine for Bitcoin. Um, uh, there are an increasing, this, this surprised me. There's a big increase in number of people that believe that crypto is good value. Now put that in context of where the price has gone since August in, this is taken at the end of October. Um, even after that strong price rise, there are increasing number of people that see it as good value. So that to me is really encouraging that people, even after these price rises think that don't think the market's overly frothy. Um, so another reason, you know, people are, why people are buying it. A lot of people say they're buying it for diversification reasons. A lot of people are saying because they want exposure to distributed ledger technology. Um, so I think that's, that's high. I mean, of the biggest concerns, it's volatility is the biggest concern and corporate restrictions. Um, and so, you know, that's of the people who said, obviously that they don't own Bitcoin in, in their portfolio though. Um, what are the biggest risks? From, uh, what I hear is that, well, the survey tells us that it's politics and government ban. That's what people are most afraid of. And then obviously regulation. They by far outstrip uh, anything else. Uh, now, interesting, I do, there's one other question I like to call the zeitgeist question. It's remained the same in both. It's about whether inflation is transitory or permanent. Now, the reason why I ask this question is because we think, we believe Bitcoin is a real asset, is an inf offers inflation protection characteristics and what we've seen is a big increase in the number of investors that believe inflation is more permanent in nature so i think that what re reflects is people's increasing fear that actually the fed has not got inflation under control and there's a big problem and you know a lot of our institution investors that are thinking about buying now are citing this as a problem this is like a hedge for them against loose monetary policy and against um uh, an inflation problem that they might not have under control. I'm curious, James, I'm reading from your October 29th survey where 60% of respondents found, uh, thought that inflation was permanent rather than transitory. What was it in your most recent finding? I wouldn't be shocked if it were higher given the extraordinarily high level of uh, uh, CPI we saw in, in November. Yeah, so it ticked up to, I think it was around 63, 64% now. So that increasing mm. number of people... Um, 
So, and I think, you know, if you look at inflation swaps in the market, that measure for um, sentiment and inflation, that's rising. There's an increasing camp of investors now think the Fed have not got inflation under control and they're very limited in their firepower. So how many rate hikes they might be able to do two, three, four conciliatory rate hikes. But after that, there's a lot of people with a lot of debt that if you rate, rate, raise rates too high, those kind of zombie debt holders have, it causes a major problem for the economy. So it's very hard to see, to square that peg, to see how the Fed can keep inflation out, uh, in control whilst also dealing with the, the large amount of debt that people own in the United States and across the developed world for that matter. Uh, in the, the survey, when you asked what are the key risks for digital assets at present, the top two answers were a uh, government ban or regulation. What do you see as the, as the most prescient risks for digital assets? You might not think the risks are great if you're very bullish, but uh, what do you think the greatest risks are, even if they're relatively small? The perceived risks or the real risks? Because they're different. The real risks. Real risks. <laughs> yeah, the perceived risks are things like quantum computing and other, other, other rubbish like that. But I think the real risks definitely are uh, probably politics and a government ban. Um, and that might come in the form of regulation, you know. Um, you know, we've got the U.S., uh, the, sorry, the House in the United States talking, debating this right now. I think their current bill is incredibly impractical. Basically, what it's saying is if you're a kid in, who's mining Bitcoin at home, you will be classed as a broker and therefore should be taxed. That's completely unenforceable, obviously. Um, so the IRS are likely to really push back against that point. Um, but, yeah, I... I I do think I don't think there will be a government ban. Just the very fact that the SEC have now allowed a Bitcoin ETF suggests they're they're looking to regulate it rather than than ban it in that respect. Um, and I do think there are ways you can regulate it. You can start to come down a bit harder on, uh, say, the marketing materials for Bitcoin investments. And I think actually that's right. If you look, if you go on to some exchanges, for instance, you can get 100 times leverage. That is crazy. That's that's mad. that's so risky. And I think that those kind of practices which don't exist in the existing investment world should be curtailed. Um, and actually, I think it will do Bitcoin a service in becoming a much more mature asset in that respect. So actually, I think regulation is 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 a good thing. I don't think it should be confused with a ban. Although I do think regulation will create some wobbles and some in the prices and, and, and Bitcoin and volatility at times too. James, you run the data center at CoinShares analyzing the fund flows into crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the like. And it's really uh, valuable data. I'd love to, to go through it with you. Um, so I've just got your most recent up, uh, report. And for example, uh, last week, we saw $306 million of inflows into digital assets. I want to start, James, can you define what an inflow means? So, for example, if I go on a uh, brokerage like uh, you know, Coinbase to so sort of buy something, but to buy uh, a Bitcoin, that probably won't count as an inflow. It only counts if it's via an institutional exchange-traded product or mutual fund. Uh, is, is that correct? And can you just delineate that for us? Yeah, I put very similar. I mean... We would love to track hedge funds, etc. So I look at every single Bitcoin fund in the world um, that is listed. So on a traditional exchange. So there are, I think, probably quite a few Bitcoin funds that purely operate on distributed ledger networks. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, we can't track those. So it's every listed entity. So typically, that's traditional investors buying. Um, 
so that might be hedge funds. Um, it might be, but it's predominantly um, what we call ETPs, exchange traded products, which is an umbrella term for ETFs that you might have heard of in the United States, such as the new ProShares one. Um, and it basically just tracks money coming in and out of those funds. And the fund flows are typically out, stay outside of the, uh, the, the price movements. So stripping out the price movements, because you, you know we might see the assets under management of a Bitcoin fund rise from a billion to 1.2 from one week to the next, but it might not have had any money flow into it. So what the fund flows are doing is actually showing you how much money or net new assets are flowing in and out. And it's quite an interesting way of gauging um, sentiment towards markets, towards particular cryptocurrencies. I think what's really interesting, I think flavor of the second half of this year has definitely been Solana. It's on a relative basis had some really strong inflows. And I think that reflects investors perhaps um, frustrations with Ethereum and its high gas prices, for instance. James, can you just describe how you calculate that? Uh, a fund, an exchange-traded product goes from a billion net asset value at NAV to 1.2 billion. How do you determine which is an inflow and which is just the price going up? Yeah, I mean, I get a lot of questions on this and a lot of people asking me for the data. Um, quite simply, if you have a Bloomberg terminal, you can do it yourself. You just need to get hold of all the, the, um, the tickers of all the different funds. Um, there are around 150 now. And then you need to look at the change in number of shares on a daily basis and then multiply that by the NAV, the net asset value. And that will give you uh, the money flowing in and out on, on a daily basis. It's that simple. And there are some other sort of additional complications such as currencies because different companies publish their NAV and uh, in, in different prices, which makes it quite challenging from a data perspective. But yeah, after, aside from that, you know, the basic concept of it is very simple. Yeah. So luckily, uh, we have you to do the work for us and we can just analyze the yeah. results. So uh, this year, the inflows, institutional inflows are something like nine and a half billion. So it's, it's on, a tr on track to be over $10 billion of inf uh, inflows into these exchange traded products uh, and the like. Uh, how did that compare to 2020 and how did that compare to 2019? Yeah. So in 2019, I think we saw around two billion dollars of inflow so pretty decent in 2020 we saw 6.7 billion dollars worth of inflows and uh year to date we've seen uh yeah nearly i think it's 9.7 billion dollars of inflow so i you know i think there's this thing about that people are concerned about is bitcoin or crypto assets are they going to remain a niche asset i think it's you know we can confidently say that's not happening yet you know there's still pretty steady kind of increases in inflows every year on year so that's quite encouraging it's certainly becoming mainstream i get a lot of questions around okay how much of this is institutional money and i genuinely think very little yet this is very much a retail driven thing and it makes sense that it's that way because institutional investors can only buy things in regulated structures for the most part um, and bitcoin I think for the most part has until very recently not been in a regulated uh, structure. And that's why the retail have been able to take advantage of something that institutional can't. But, you know, I do, given the amount of conversations we're having with clients right now, that is on the cusp of changing in a very big way. Just to be clear, James, the inflows that you're measuring, for example, 900, excuse me, 9.7 billion in, uh, this year, 
you're saying that most of that is retail, not institutional? Yeah, it's very difficult, actually, for us to define exactly without calling up each individual client and saying, did you buy some or did you not, which is quite difficult. Um, it's very difficult to disaggregate what's institutional and what, what's retail. I mean, our estimates are probably only around 10% of it is, is institutional and the rest is probably retail. Wow. Because the inflows that you're measuring are such a small fraction of the total market caps themselves. For example, the inflows this year uh, amount, are going to amount to something like 10 billion into the exchange traded, uh, traded products. But William, what is the uh, market cap of the total crypto landscape? You know, well over 2 trillion, right? Yeah, I know this Funflows report gets a lot of uh, um, attention. But if you look in the sort of bottom second page on the bottom right, I always include a chart and it demonstrates the percentage of of um, exchange traded product fund flow, uh, flows as a percentage of total Bitcoin flows or total Bitcoin volume, sorry. And what you find is actually it ranges anywhere from 4 to 8% of uh, Bitcoin, total Bitcoin trading turnover. And that's, I've stripped out wash trades there. So, you know, on average Bitcoin this year has been trading around uh, $10 billion a day on the spot market on trusted exchanges. Whereas it's only been around say 800 million a day on Bitcoin fund, regulated funds. So it's still a very small proportion of that. I mean, there has been some, some people I think have been worried that, you know, maybe these investors make up a massive proportion of Bitcoin trading, but actually what this data shows is it's actually pretty small. And, it's, and it demonstrates there's a lot more going on in Bitcoin than just you know, these investor fund flows. And what is the impact of an inflow on the price of crypto? Uh, so for example, over the past five weeks, Bitcoin saw uh, an inflow of $247 million. I'm looking at the chart of the weekly uh, crypto asset inflows over this year. And as in the beginning of the year, it's very high. Then it goes, uh, drops down sharply and even goes slightly negative, as you mentioned. Then it peaks up again. And the huge outlier is the 43rd week of the year. Uh, and I believe that is the week where ProShares launched its exchange-traded fund, BITO, in the United States. And of course, an exchange traded fund is different uh, than like the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, where uh, that Grayscale Bitcoin Trust can trade at a huge premium uh, as it did before, or a huge discount to its net asset value. Whereas the goal of an ETF is that it can always issue or buy back shares uh, uh, in according with, with demand. So it will always remain a few basis points, uh, uh, you know, close to its net asset value. Um, how would you say that the creation of uh, BITO change the landscape yeah i mean i think there was this pent-up demand i mean we were all looking at grayscale and thinking wow you know this is a closed end fund which means basically when you buy it you're locked in for a certain period of time and you can't sell out or you can try and sell it on the secondary market and so what's happened is that actually a lot of people have been selling on the secondary market and that's led for it to sort of become traded a discount of roughly on average around 15 percent which leaves it in quite a difficult, with many people who own it in a difficult situation. If they want to sell, they've got to take a 15% hit. And so that is, and quite often people were buying at a significant premium when in the heydays for the Grayscale Fund. And so, so what we've seen actually is no fund flows on the primary, primary market for Grayscale since February. And there's just been this pent up demand. And I think when, when ProShares was launched and the SEC approved it, um, that, that pent up demand just suddenly unwound in a billion dollars in a week or $1.2 billion in a week. It was quite, quite phenomenal, really. I think it was like the, 
the fourth largest the fourth largest sort of launch of an ETF on record, and that's any ETF, so it's quite substantial. I think it this marks a, a sea change. The SEC decision marks a sea change in global regulatory approaches because I, you know, certainly in Europe we see Bitcoin ETFs, or they call them ETP, ETCs, actually technically in in Europe because it can't be an ETF, but um, in Europe we see them across all the different exchanges: Zetra in Germany, the Paris Euronext and Swiss exchanges as well. So um, it's there and I think regulators have accepted it. Um, it's not accepted in the UK anymore for retail investors, which is frustrating for us. Um, but in the US, there was that big question mark. And I think the SEC, in other words, allowing a futures-based product, not a physically backed one, um, was a first step, I think, in, in, in I think really us seeing signals that there's regulatory acceptance for that. And that's a massive thing because the Bitcoin price volatility and and regulations are highly correlated. When there's some negative regulatory statement, Bitcoin volatility really picks up. So, you know, Bitcoin prices are very sensitive to regulatory decision making. Mm. And so Grayscale is a closed end fund. That is the largest uh, exchange uh, traded product by far, $50 billion. Number two is CoinShares XBT, uh, uh, the company that you work for. Does, is CoinShares XBT, is that a spot Bitcoin product or is it uh, futures-based? No, that's uh, it's kind of futures-based. It's what they call an ETN, exchange traded note. We're getting deep into ETP uh, terminology here. Um, essentially, um, it's it's fully hedged with against Bitcoin. But I think back in the day, it was the first ETP of its type back in May 2015. It just wasn't, there was no kind of legal or technical ability to create in a physically backed product at that time. And therefore, it, this was the next best thing. I mean, the problem with a an ETN is it's not technically bankruptcy remote. So if the company fails, you could lose your investment with it. Um, and um, so we have launched new products, our physically backed ones, where they are technically bankruptcy remote. So um, if, if you know, I think this is a due diligence question for many professional investors. They want to have, they want to, to have that one settled. Now, if you combine all our assets under management, I think our AUM is around $6 billion at the moment. Mm. Yeah, and even though the, the ProShares ETF had these huge inflows, the fourth largest uh, um, offering ever for an ETF, it's still only $1.3 billion assets under management, which is you know something like 40 times smaller than, than the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Grayscale was so early to the game, GBTC, and even investors who were right on Bitcoin, and let's say they bought it in 2016, they massively underperformed. If they bought GBTC, they massively underperformed those who just bought Bitcoin because GBTC went from a massive premium to a significant discount. Like, a, you know, now it's trading yeah. something like 15, 20% at a discount. Uh, by the way, I know this all too well because I did buy GBTC. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've, I've suffered that. I got the Bitcoin appreciation minus the, the change from trading at a premium to trading at a discount. And, you know, that that hurts. What do you see for uh, GBTC's future? Like it, if GBTC, um, they can redeem their shares when, whenever, when it becomes an ETF, then it's just 15% free money. But then I guess, you know, why is there a 15% discount? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's underperformed Bitcoin price by 132% over the last year. Um, so, yes, the pro this is the problem with closed-end funds is you can't freely trade them. And I think, you know, I've seen the, the recent, most recent Grayscale comments 
And and I think this is their frustration. I mean, it was the only kind of solution they could come up with at the time, a bit like our oh, exchange traded note, you know. Um, and um, and I think it's quite right actually that they're pressing the SEC to to say right, it's time now for physically backed um, exchange trade ETF because. Um, even with a, a futures-based one, you know, I'm, by my calculations, a futures-based product over the last year would have underperformed by 29%. So, you know, even a futures-based one doesn't track. So it's right that they're pushing towards a physically backed one. It will track the price a lot better. And, um, and you know, I, I think that makes sense for their clients. I mean, they, there could be, at the moment, they could inc- perhaps modify their 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 funds so that i don't know the technical the legal ins and outs of this but they could modify it so it has daily trading which might help negate the the the, 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 the discount problem that it has um but you know it's, it's very much well i saw it many times is when they were when it's trading a significant premium that reflected people's demand for it and when now it's tra- trading at a discount it reflects people's lack of demand for it in some respects um but there also isn't the there isn't the next best option isn't necessarily the ProShares ETF because it's futures based and it doesn't track the price as well, but it's it's cheaper and it's probably a better option than than a closed end fund. Uh, James, looking at how much uh, assets under management, not by the exchange traded product, but by the underlying crypto assets such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, Binance, Litecoin, uh, I think you know viewers watching this may be shocked. To, to see just the wide discrepancy. So Bitcoin obviously is number one at 48 billion. Ethereum uh, has a very solid, respectable 18 billion, but it falls off so quickly after there. You know, someone listening to this who their favorite coin is Ripple, they would be shocked to learn that only $76 uh, uh, million is managed uh, assets under management in, in uh, these exchange traded products uh, compared to $48 billion for, for Bitcoin. However, James, we do have some new entrants. We have Solana, we have Polkadot. And over the past, over the last week, and we're recording this on December 2nd, and I'm re- re- uh, reading from your report, which is from November 9th, um, excuse me, November 29th, uh, Solana uh, had inflows of $11 million. Excuse me, Solana had inflows of $14.6 million, which was 5.9% of assets under management. And Polkadot had $11.5 million uh, of inflows uh, relative to $133 million of assets under management. So basically, that's uh, uh, that's a 8, 8.6% of AUM is inflowing over the past week. So that's I did a little math back of the hand of calculation. That's the equivalent of the S&P 500 is $40 trillion asset under management. That's like $3.5 trillion going into the S&P 500 last week, uh, which, which would have been a little bit crazy. What are you seeing in terms of uh, you know, these inflows, which are so huge relative to the assets under management, just growing so quickly. Yeah. I mean, investors are all on a learning journey, I think, in digital assets. It's a very new asset class. And people are at different stages along that learning journey. Many, particularly in the institutional space, are only just getting to grips with understanding Bitcoin and Ethereum. They were also, if you look at the products and when they were launched, virtually all products other than Ethereum and Bitcoin have been launched this year alone. So um, there wasn't really much, except Ripple, for instance, there wasn't really much options for people to buy. It was just Bitcoin and Ethereum. And, um, you know, particularly last year, the conversation was all about Bitcoin and Ethereum and nothing else. And this year, it's really branched out to other things. I think people have seen the price appreciation of, of Ethereum and thought, okay, along comes that 
some gas price problems. Okay, what other alternatives are there? And then people, I think, have been very much. I do. I dare to say, perhaps they've foregone. They're they're not. They don't care so much about um, a distributed network at the moment because Solana is less distributed than uh, Ethereum. But they certainly they really like the idea of a network that has much much lower gas fees, can transact much more quickly. So I think that represents that. It also represents this demand amongst investors because one of the things you didn't talk about was multi-asset funds. Investors are really liking the idea of buying a group of coins in one in one investment vehicle, a multi-asset crypto, like a top five crypto, for instance, because people want to diversify. They've got used to, on people's learnings journeys. Some of them got used to this idea, idea of Bitcoin and Ethereum. They're starting to look elsewhere and thinking, actually, one of the best ways to diversify is may, maybe buying the sort of the top five. So that's been very popular too. But yes, I think Solana in particular, if you were to look at what's winning the kind of world computer um, theme at the moment in terms of crypto investing, it's probably Solana in that respect. I mean, that's not to negate like Ethereum. It's seen $1.2 billion of inflows year to date. So that's still clearly very popular. But people are starting to vent their frustrations and, and buy Solana as well. And if investors are just trying to buy and hold Ethereum, uh, would they care about the gas fees as much? Or is it just that they think the gas fees, the exorb sometimes exorbitant gas fees can kind of derail the system and make it less attractive to use? It's the latter. I, I think when people buy Ethereum, they're looking at the fundamentals. They might Their intention might be to buy and hold it, but they want to kick the tires of it, understand that it's a sound network, you know, is... Uh, Vitalik Buterin and his team, Ethereum Foundation, are they making sound decisions for their network? You know, how successful is EIP 1559? You could argue it's not been a great success story to date. Um, and people will look at all these different factors and make a judgment to invest in Ethereum or not. And that might be a long-term holding, you know, quite a sticky asset from that respect. But, you know, these sorts of fundamentals uh, are what people measure Ethereum and other digital assets by. Mm. And um, what's what's your view on why, um, excuse me, why Cardano and Ripple, which are something like uh, you know very, very large market cap coins, how come they have such a fraction of representation in the uh, exchange traded products? Uh, you know, Ripple is only seventy six million, Cardano only eighty seven million, and yet Cardano and and Ripple are you know barely behind Solana. Yeah, I mean, I've not had too much client feedback on this one, but I'm guessing people have seen some of the protocol challenges Cardano's had and felt that it's it's, it's, it's the Solana's much more compe compelling prospect. Um, uh, you could argue that it's still within that top five. I think Cardano, yeah, it's still in that top five space, so it still it still could benefit um, in that respect. But yeah, I think people are just balancing the fundamentals and saying Solana looks more attractive. Now, I think Ripple, you know, what is the investment case uh, for, for Ripple? It, it is about making interbank transactions more efficient. Um, maybe there are better ways of investing um, than, than buying Ripple directly. Maybe you buy the banks that adopt the systems. Maybe from an investor's perspective, that's a better approach to take. Uh, and then are there any coins that are too small to be on the table that, that that's uh in your report but where you are seeing you know increased activity uh whether it's uh, uh you know, uniswap or avalanche or algorand or Chainlink, um would are, are you know do these have any representation at all is there you know any money going in to these there have been some new product launches um 
Avalanche is one and a, and a couple of others. I think it's really early days, you know, because if you go from one, you know, what happens when a fund is launched? It is launched with what they call seed capital. So they might get a group of investors to agree that they will seed the fund to the tune of 5 million, sometimes 10 million, maybe 50 million, you know. And so in those very early days, so we've had a few more funds launched. I tend to keep on top of it. So when something's been around for about two or three weeks, I add it to the list. That list is obviously getting bigger and bigger. And I don't know how I'm going to fit it in the table soon. But, um, you know, a good example is Tron. Uh, Tron coin has, has obviously launched about a month, month and a half ago. Um, and it did have some seed capital, but it does seem to be having a little bit of momentum people continuing to buy. But I, I think in the early stage of the first month or two, I just think you have to be a little bit cautious because it's, it's kind of um, confused with, you can confuse it with the seed capital, which can be something quite different to regular investor inflows. I think what's encouraging for us is, you know, I think the better question in my opinion is where are we seeing um, the regular investor inflows and if i look across all the different asset classes you know if we look at regularly daily flows you know it's 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 polka dots it's multi-asset it's cardano it's litecoin to some extent solana tron a little bit you know we do have this other section um which is other smaller coins but that's still pretty you know pretty small it's only representing around 75 million dollars of assets under management so it's not too big and sorry, uh, when you say Cardano, Ripple, you were talking about into the exchange traded products or just buying the actual uh, coins themselves? No, no, into the exchange traded products, yeah. Got, got it, got it. And, and what are the uh, reasons that a retail investor would buy an exchange traded product uh, versus just buying the, the coin uh, directly? Yeah, there's several ways. I mean, I think you know, if you can buy through Coinbase directly um, in your pension, then maybe it's a good way of doing it because... Um, there is an annual fee uh, for an ETF, whereas there isn't for Coinbase. You know, you, there is a trading execution cost, but after that, there isn't really. Um, but you do start to, when you start to go into the realms of regulated funds, you start to have challenges. So if you want to buy in your pension, you have to, it has to be um, in a regulated structure. So on an exchange, that's what exchange traded really means. It has to, you have to be able to trade it on a regulated exchange. Now, Coinbase is not a regulated exchange yet, so you can't do that. It might be quite some time before that happens. There are other more sort of due diligence questions you have to ask yourself as well, is are all the exchanges like Kraken, Coinbase, Bitstamp, et cetera, are they bankruptcy remote? So if, that, if, the, if one of those exchanges goes bust, what happens to that individual's assets? What happens to it? I don't, it, it's not entirely clear. Now I expect, that there will be some sort of uh, uh, some sort of clawback for those individuals that had it at that exchange uh, for their assets, but it might take some quite some time to to get those back. Also, exchange traded funds kind of guarantee liquidity as well. So it's been known on some exchanges that when you have periods of market stress, let's say you wanted to to sell out and you, you call up your exchange, you try to do it online, the website's not working and the, and the phone lines are, are completely uh, blocked. So you can't execute a trade. Whereas an exchange traded fund, there's guaranteed liquidity. And as a consequence, there's, you can always trade no matter how stressful the market is. And James, do you find that if there are two investors who are completely identical, except one of them buys Bitcoin, the actual Bitcoin, and another one buys a Bitcoin exchange traded product, 
is the person who buys the exchange traded product likely to be stickier, i.e. not be hot money at just chasing it going up and then getting out, or as soon as it crashes, they, they get out and um, you know, so, uh, you know, holding for a longer period of time and therefore uh, posing a, a structural dampening of volatility um, or, or, you know, or not? Um, there is actually, overall on the Bitcoin network, there is an increasing hodler mentality. If you look at UTXO data, you can find that people that held, hold money for a year or longer in um, in Bitcoin uh, was 30% in 2012. It's now 54% today. So there's definitely just overall a hodler mentality, which does allude to this idea of it being a store, store of value. If we look at net new assets in exchange traded funds, they are hardly anyone is selling out. Although we had a big market correction, we did some out, some outflows, on, uh, uh, or we did see some outflows. Um, on the grand scheme of things, if you look historically, that that's just been the outflows have been just minimal. Um, people, for the most part, are just buying and holding. And certainly, you know, and it, actually, it's known that retail investors tend to be kind of stickier investors. They tend to buy and they tend to hold for a longer time, even than institutional investors in that respect. Um, so, yeah, I do think that if you're trading um, an ET. Well, you're more like what we're seeing is greater trading mentality on on exchanges than exchange traded products. Yes, definitely. Uh, and have you any done any work on uh, the derivatives like the, the Bitcoin futures, the Ethereum futures that were launched by CME? Uh, you know, to what degree have they changed the, the market structure? Because I know a lot there is the futures curve was in contango, so people were you know ex, uh, exerting an arbitrage trade by selling the futures and, and buying the spot. Has that changed market structure or, or not so much? Um, I don't think so. I mean, well, I think the contango situation, which, by the way, is just when futures prices are higher than existing prices. So, you know, the contango situation is represents people's expectations for the price in that they think it's going to go up. And that's why the futures prices are higher. So, you know, it comes from it's a bit of a funny one because futures futures are meant for commodities where, you know, you buy oil for delivery in a one month. It's not; it doesn't exist yet. And you think, okay, I'll receive delivery for it in a month. Now, clearly, like when you're investing it, you don't want to receive that oil in a month. So you roll to the next contract. You you don't receive the physical delivery. You roll into the next contract. Now, if you're in a contango situation, that means you're going to pay more for your, compared to your existing contract, and that eats away your returns. And that's why futures-based products and Bitcoin and other and other commodities. Uh, tend to not fully track the price that well. I don't necessarily think it's having a massive effect. I think it has a, an effect on sentiment because if you look at futures growth, CME has become the largest futures market on Bitcoin in the world. It's all of a sudden, like in the space of two or three months. Um, so it definitely has an impact on sentiment and a positive uh, attitude towards crypto. And also, it, 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 this is Bitcoin futures trading on a regulated exchange. And I think that really helps the kind of legitimacy argument for, for Bitcoin. Uh, to me, James, when people talk about Bitcoin as a replacement for bonds, uh, it, it makes sense because uh, you know Bitcoin does well in, in a world and when bond yields are so low. But it seems to me that actually stablecoin yields are a a true replacement because you actually are getting what you used to get out of bonds, a 13% yield. Uh, what do you make of stablecoins, investing in stablecoins, and the yield generation that you can get uh, them? And perhaps, uh, you know, what do you make of, of uh, yield farming? Yeah, so, I mean, Bitcoin, yeah, 
sorry, bonds are fixed income. You're guaranteed those returns. Unless that entity that issues that bond goes bust, like the government or whatever, you guarantee that income. And the thing about stable coins is it's different in that respect. It's more like a dividend yield. You know, it's not the, the, the income you receive in that stable coin or whatever sort of product you're, you're investing in, whether it's Solana or Polkadot or whatever, or whatever, is a function of something. And it's not a fixed income in that respect. And, you know, so stable coins is a function of people's appetite for and credit worthiness for, for DeFi products. I think for something like Solana or Polkadot, it's, it's written into the code, isn't it? It's, it's the proportion, the appetite for those, those funds. That's how the yield is, is, is calculated. So, I mean, it's different in that respect. But I think when you start to look at it, you know, why are people replacing it? Uh, Bitcoin and other crypto asset and stable coins with uh, from from they're moving away from bonds. Um, probably, I mean bonds. You know, people start to talk about Bitcoin being in a bubble, but theoretically, bonds are in the mother of all bubbles. They've been, you know, basically, if you look at bond yields over the last 40 years, they've been trending downwards. I mean, that is madness. And I think across the developed world, we'll move into a situation where you have to pay to lend people <laughs> to lend people money negative yields essentially and that will push more and more people into things like stable coins and they'll become increasingly popular now yeah i think this, the other sort of side of it is the DeFi market is still a very infantile a very young market and yields for that reason are still quite high and i think as the market matures those yields won't be quite so attractive as they are today um, you can, you know, in yield farming in particular, which I think, by the way, encourages people to into Ponzi schemes in some respects. You know, you could argue that people are, you know, they're flipping from one high yielding place to another high yielding place. You know, for instance, I think a lot of people flipped into Avalanche recently, and that's obviously quite high yielding. And, um, you know, you could argue, is this becoming a bit Ponzi-esque? You know, if I'm to be a bit critical here you know people are piling into it for the yield and for no other reason you know i think you have to be a little bit cautious in that respect and perhaps in yield farming people aren't looking at the fundamentals either they're just looking at what's the next best yield and that's a bit dangerous you know and i think is an area of DeFi that's becoming quite frothy and people should be cautious yeah, it's, it's funny you call the yields on Avalanche high. Uh, I, I actually don't know what, what they are. Maybe 15, 20% or are they higher than that? Uh, that's high. But James, as you know, there are, there are coins um, such as wonderland.money where if you, <laughs> yes. type, you type that in, you'll go, you'll find a picture of like a sort of a ferocious cat and you scroll down yes. and it says 80,000% so i think i i'm perhaps a bit more cautious in their respect i've come from the traditional finance 20 years in traditional finance where the higher a yield is the higher the risk is essentially and i think that kind of comes true you know there's been some really great medium articles on this actually where people have managed to yield farm and get some quite incredible yields but quite often they're very aware of the risks they're taking, you know. And for now, where we've not seen, it's when you see a crash in the markets when these things really unwind in a very ugly way. You know, it's the same in equity markets. When some, when a company is offering you a 12% dividend yield, you've got to think, okay, wow, there's something clearly wrong with that company. Maybe it's a turd you don't want to touch. And I think, <laughs> you know, this is, it's possible, like, yeah, I'm sure people are making money in it, but it's, that's too punchy for me, I'm afraid. Yeah. 
Uh, James, perhaps the most active sector, the, the sector that's expanding the most uh, uh, rapidly in crypto is non-fungible tokens and uh, the metaverse tokens, stuff like that. Well, what, question number one, what are your broad thoughts on that? And then also, do you ever see those uh, being, uh, in, you know, being invested in by institutions and also being in the exchange traded products? Like, are we ever going to see an NFT in your table on your weekly fund flow? We're already seeing Visa buy NFTs. And I, I really like the concept of NFTs. I think it, it epitomizes what Bitcoin and distributed ledger technology is all about. You know, essentially what Bitcoin invented, it was like the first thing you couldn't copy and paste on the internet. And the first time I heard about NFTs, I was like, this is weird. This is like an image. I can just send anyone an image. But what it really represents is the, the, the digital provenance of that image. And it bakes in uh, a, a, you know, a kind of fee that the artist gets every time it, exchange, it trades on the, on the secondary market. And I, I think that's, that's brilliant in respect. It's got that perfect provenance. And so I really can get why so many people are moving into the NFT space. Now, I think an area of the NFT world that's not been exploited at all is real world artists getting into the NFTs. Now, we've seen Damien Hurst, but not many actually really well-known artists get into this space. And I think that's an area that could really do well. Now, obviously, CryptoPunks and there's, there's some frothy areas of the market. Axie Infinity is amazing what's happening there. There's a whole kind of macroeconomic sort of ecosystem created in the Philippines because of this and now you know going to places like Venezuela as well where people are making secondary income I do worry a little bit about that um, because it seems a bit frothy but I think the whole concept behind NFTs is it, it works from an art perspective it also comes down to this subjectivity of Bitcoin too because a lot of people say Bitcoin is is has no intrinsic value um, and, and, but I think it's a bit like gold. Actually, what has intrinsic value is incredi incredibly subjective. And in the, in the NFT space, that's exactly the same. You know, I personally would not pay $40 million for um, a Picasso, for instance. But clearly, there are people that will. And, and I think it's the same in the NFT spaces. You know, the price has gone very high. But there are clearly people that, that will. And, you know, you only have to look at... OpenSea to see its revenues, you know, the, I think it were, there were two and a half billion in September and 2.1 billion in October. The show, there's a huge amount of appetite for this in, in this space. I think there's a lot of kind of rubbish in the NFT space, but again, I'm, this is subjective, right? People like what they like. I, I own some NFTs that I think are quite nice. I'm sure some people might think they're rubbish, but you know, I own a, a Ether Lambo, for instance, but um, wow, you know. Uh, I like that about you, James. You're really you're you're putting yourself in. The, you're getting your hands dirty. You're 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 uh, um, uh, mining the coins back back in the, early in the day. You're buying the NFTs. Um, uh, that's I really admire that. Uh, my final question for you, James, is uh, where do you see the space going in five years? Uh, you know, are are prices higher by a little bit, higher by a lot, uh, um, lower? What you know? What percentage of people own um, blockchains? Are banks using some sort of uh, blockchain? Is that is that blockchain a coin that's traded now? Is it going to be something that they themselves develop? Incredibly open-ended question. But where do you see the space evolving? Yeah, I mean, I, there are so many projects right now, um, and people are looking for that next hundred x. I see it. I see it tweeted. The next hundred x coin. Um, you know, I do actually think there'll be quite in the next five years there'll be quite a lot of attrition. There'll be quite a lot, a big sort of shakeout of those coins, which, you know, after a while, investors will get fed up with and say, well, they're not really delivering on it. It hasn't really captured the, 
um, the kind of imagination. I mean, I'm not by any means a Bitcoin maximalist. I think, um, you know, in a perfect uh, world, like Bitcoin could do everything, but the world's not perfect. And in fact, Ethereum's got a soul and a march on Bitcoin in terms of some of all the additional smart contracting that it can do that's actually very difficult to do on on um, uh, on Bitcoin. And I'm a firm believer of, you know, the dev counts, the developer counts in these places. When you have high developer counts, you clearly know there's a lot of activity going on in these spaces. A lot of people are using it. And that's perhaps why, for instance, Solana's been popular. Um, but, you know, the dev count drops off very quickly um, after the top 10 coins. And so I do think there'll be a lot of attrition. People will start to get an idea of what the big themes are. You know, so I think these sectors, digital asset sectors will become a lot more defined. You know, it's only now very early days that we're seeing, for instance, in the digital music rights space that we're starting to see blockchain technology take off. Um, I think it will start to pervade lots of different sectors around the world, such as supply chain, enterprise, um, all these different areas and stores of value, et cetera. We'll see all these different areas become much more defined in the space. But I do think we'll see people start to magnate towards the, the better coins and perhaps like in five years time, some of the existing top 10 or top 20 coins will be much bigger in size. Of course, I'm sure there'll be some real surprises that we didn't know about. Um, but I think the incumbents now are starting to really establish themselves. Uh, and it's also, you know, I think particularly in a proof of work coin um, to it's not, you can't just flip from one technology to another and a proof of work. There's a lot of vested interest in that, in that proof of work. And so it's hard for people. To, we won't see the smartphone moment, you know, where people just suddenly all start buying smartphones. I think it's hard to move from one proof of work coin to another as a miner in particular, because you've invested so much in that one particular coin. But could that actually be an analogy to smartphones where if you have an, uh, an iPhone, you're just like, I'm going to use Apple for the rest of my life because all of my data is on there and there's a huge switching cost. Um, yeah, that's true. I, I, I think that brings me up to actually totally changing the, the subject. Well, no, it's not, it's related, but Web 3.0, I think is going to be massive. Um, and we've seen an indication of, you talked about smartphones. So Apple and the iOS 15 released a lot more data protection features, um, which essentially mean that um, things like, if you looked at Snap's results, they blamed, there was a, there was a big decline in versus expectations in terms of its earnings results because, and they blamed specifically the iOS upgrade. Now that is like a precursor to what web 3.0 is going to be. This is taking the control out of, um, uh, out of the, the marketers and, and the retailers owning your identity. You will be able to own your identity. And I think that's going to create a massive shakeup in the ad revenue model for a lot of websites like Facebook, et cetera, like, and that. So I think it's web 3.0 is going to hugely transform this whole industry. You know, if you're, this is why, you know, Facebook's so desperate to have its own token, because if it doesn't, then it's kind of, it's not going, it's not going to exist in five to 10 years time. So that whole token space for web 3.0 is going to, is going to become massive. Well, I really want to ask you a question about Web 3.0, but I want to, you know, you've been so generous with your time as well as insights. James, it's been uh, fantastic getting the chance to interview you, hear your thoughts. Uh, people should definitely follow you on Twitter at Jay Butterfill. 
And also they should read your weekly fund flows reports, which are on Medium as well as CoinShares.com and your other research, such as the, the fund manager survey and um, this great report, uh, which is called uh, Little Bitcoin Goes a Long Way. One of your many great reports uh, on CoinShares. James, my final question for you is I am someone who's very new to crypto. I've been maybe uh, on, on the sidelines observing it for about three years, but very new to actually sort of get, you know, getting into the weeds uh, as you have been for a long time. Uh, perhaps a lot of people watching this uh, are, are similar to me where they've you know, done a little bit of work in the macro world, doing a little bit of research, but they're very new into crypto, into actually learning how it works and you know, sort of it, being, a, being a real analyst rather than just sort of a, a spectator. Uh, what what advice would you give to me and maybe the other viewers who are very new into the space? Like, how James, how do we get to be like you? Oh God, I don't know. If like me is, I th I don't think I'm quite as wealthy as many people in the industry. But um, um, knowledge, wealthy knowledge. I think, that's what I mean. Oh, I think oh, my knowledge. Oh, um, I think um, just plug away at it and read loads and loads and loads. I mean that. There are still huge holes in my knowledge, which obviously I won't divulge. Um, uh, I think I'm particularly weak in the DeFi space. I mean, I think the biggest challenge is is knowing what to kind of pick and know what's important. The it's just the complexity uh, of the whole crypto space is just exploding. There's so many different ways you can go, and I think actually core knowledge core knowledge of understanding Bitcoin will help you understand so many other protocols. That to me is the first place to start. And then something like Ethereum or Solana, which are kind of this world computer theme. I think tackle it by themes, you know, look at particular things such as the supply chain theme, you know, what, who's operating in that space? Is it something that's genuinely compelling? I mean, so, so for me as an investor, for instance, now, if I was to create my own portfolio, how would I structure it? I think I'd break it down into these different sectors, how it transforms banking, how Web 3.0 transforms ad revenue models, how it transforms the, uh, the media sector, all these different spaces, start to break it down into groups and then, and then start to learn a little, about, a little bit about all of those and which coins perhaps represent that, that kind of theme the best. That's probably the best way to do it because it's becoming so complex, so such a big space. You can easily feel like a little bit like a rabbit in the headlights. I mean, sometimes I get clients asking me questions about some random coin that's like number 100. I genuinely probably have no clue about it, but I don't think there's anything wrong in admitting that. So, Yeah, clients to come to you and they're like, James, what are your thoughts on Filecoin? Yeah, actually, I, have, I do have a view on Filecoin. I quite like the idea, but oh, yeah? Yeah, there, there are sort of, you know, kind of, some other coins that I have absolutely no, you know, for instance, I should know Axie Infinity um, a lot better than I do, but I don't. And it's something that's on the list of things to know a lot more about. Play to Earn, I think, is a very interesting theme. Um, and, well, you know, just what's happened to Axie Infinity, I think, could happen in other places in Play to Earn. All right. Uh, well, James, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure hearing your uh, knowledge. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you, everyone, to watching. Have a good day. Thanks.